Welcome to the Raindrop Corner Podcast, a chill place where we converge with creatives and real life superheroes to chat it up about cool things. And I'm your host, Kay. And I do want to give a disclaimer on this particular podcast episode. We open the beginning of the episode and talk a fair amount throughout the episode about the guest art piece that's featured in the MOCA Museum in Jacksonville, Florida, or it was. At the time that this podcast episode is going to be released, that piece is actually going to be out of the MOCA, but I will include a link so anybody who really enjoys this podcast and would like to actually see the piece has the link so that they can kind of take the virtual tour of that piece. The name of our guest today is going to be Carl Joe Williams, who is amazing, and again, we'll be talking a little bit about his piece, Making Great Lives Matter. And I hope that you enjoy this episode, and without further ado, here's an ode to our guest. The best piece of art that he ever created was the piece of art where everybody was made to think. I came underprepared tonight to tell you the story of someone who happened to be great faceless, but also an artist, but also full of hope, who transmutated pieces of junk and ideas that people didn't care to know about into something that was tangible, pasted up against the wall, well lit in spaces that would cause people to speculate, question, and fear. And yet, he was a great man. He was a great artist. He is... The vessel of who we hope our children will become, creating ideas and manifesting things that someone who once had a dream, once dreamed of. You see, the man that I speak of dared to grace me with a little bit of his time so that he could tell me about his glimpse, his hope, his life, and a little bit of his presence on this earth that has been just as painful as it has been good. This man was a faceless man who was great, and he was painted in rainbows and sunshine and blood. He was painted in all of the L's of life, but the greatness of majesty. And what a majesty it was. This is the land of truth and honesty, even when the world isn't truth and honest. And I give you someone who believes in making great lives matter. Today we have Carl Joe Williams, who is a contemporary African-American artist. I was really, really excited to speak with you today, specifically because I wanted to get your perspective on not only the artistry that you do, but the reasons behind why you do it. What would you say kind of drives you as a person in general? Um, Wanting to make work that I feel makes a, a difference in humanity. Pretty much the drive of my work is to push humanity forward in, in a positive direction. That's one of the core reasons why I one of the core reasons for me to continue to make work. However, storytelling is at the core of my work and allowing people to tell their own stories or um, or telling their stories for them in some kind of way, shape, or form, in my mind, is the best way to make connections with, with uh, other human beings. Yeah, so it just comes from a lot of different interests. Just seeing the, the kinds of things that, that happen in our world is... It's difficult for me to not speak on it in some kind of way. And so the, the piece in particular, Making Great Labs Matter, was an opportunity to really kind of expound on a bunch of ideas that have been bubbling up in me for, for a while. Yeah, so it, it actually came from this notion of um, decolonizing the mind. And I thought about what that could possibly mean. It was a term that I never heard of before. Mm-hmm. But I you know, thought more in depth about what that could 
be and, and what that looked like. And decolonizing the mind for uh, people who are uh, perpetrators of racism and people who are victims, we all uh, find ourselves playing these roles that society has created for us. An idea of maybe figuring out ways to ask questions to start to peel back the layers on what we're all living in and, you know, to create a conversation. So that piece was really about creating conversation. Now, I have to ask, when you created that piece, like as you were going through the processes of creating it, because just to kind of paint a picture, and then I'm going to ask you to kind of paint a picture of what that piece meant for you after we kind of talk a little bit about this. But when you look at the piece, it is so full of color and vibrant and it it's interesting because there are a lot of inciting aspects to it like from images of the confederate flag to different figureheads that might incite some sort of feeling and there's almost aspects of it muted and then you have all of these other 3d components cultivating what feels like an entire more than just a scene but an atmosphere if you will so What I want to ask you about is as you created this huge piece, which by the way, if, if you haven't seen it yet, it is at the Mocha Museum in Jacksonville. So feel free to go check it out and just experience that firsthand. I feel like it's something that is worth being in the presence of, is important, is needed for you, what kind of conversation did it generate within you as you were thinking of what you wanted to create and how to create this? Good question. A lot. There were so many moving parts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the space is is huge. 42 feet high. God, I, I want to say it's approximately 30 feet, of maybe even 40, around. So it was a huge space. So understanding that... Um, people who would view it would have to have a more intimate relationship with what was going on. How do I uh, interact with the Jacksonville community, which was another component and, and thinking about how that would even fit into the entire scope of the piece. So it was just so, so many moving parts. It took Probably, I want to say a year and a half of, of from thinking, conceptualizing, coming up with multiple questions to ask people to get the conversation going, to starting to finalize things like really just before COVID really started kind of kicking in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and really just um, figuring out how to make these juxtapositions between um, having these conversations, asking people these questions. For people who don't know, there's there's video of people who are, who are talking and, and answering these questions of, of you know, things like, uh, what does the American dream mean to you? They're answering eight questions, and I don't have them all in front of me. Mm-hmm. But the idea was to have all of these people just talking over each other, and where if you walked up to one of them, one of these um, video components, you could hear each one pretty clearly. And just suppose that against, uh, I guess you could you could call it state-sanctioned uh, murders that we've been experiencing for for many years, and just really trying to evoke emotions through that type of juxtaposition. 
you know, just trying to create this kind of tension between the imagery and the answers that people are, are, are answering. Um, at the time, I was doing a lot of research, just reading a lot. Uh, in particular, one of the one of the books that I was really into at that time was a book called Cast, which is pretty popular right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Isabel Wilkinson. Just in terms of the information, and some of this information I had heard before, but it was just really, really well done and well researched. And it just it made you think about racism and white supremacy in America in a different way. It made you think about it in more of a caste system, and that's pretty much what we're existing in. And so that's a very true way to put it. Yeah, yeah, it was a it was a great. Um, amazing uh, book and so I remember just kind of going through that book over and over and over again and then allowing a lot of the ideas that that came through help me help guide the work to a certain extent mm-hmm. and ultimately I mean it's this idea of uh, deconstructing the, the American flag that was an important component to that work in the very beginning and with all the things that was going on, and I think uh, when George Floyd, and I was already planning on doing this work mm-hmm. in the, the way that I did it, but something about the George Floyd video that really made me just go a lot stronger in the type of imagery I, that I was using because deconstructing the American flag was one thing, but then there was all of these other symbols that are a part of American history and that all basically mean the same things and have been used for the same reasons to symbolize a lot of the same things. Mm-hmm. So for me to take those symbols and recontextualize them was important. And the beauty of it, I felt, was when you go back in some of those symbols and realize that those symbols have a very, very deep history that that go all the way back to Africa, I find it, the irony of that. There's so much the, irony. Right, right. It was it was so poetic <laughs> that it was difficult not to incorporate these, these, uh, these symbols into the work. And for me, um, allowing myself to be influenced by African-American quilt patterns and, and African textiles, allowing myself to be influenced by that and using those types of, of symbols, um, which we just seen what's, what's happened at the Capitol. I mean, these are, a, these are deeply a part of America. And it was very poetic in a sense because it reminded me of how African-Americans really have to navigate this type of social construct. So, and then after that, it was about trying to put all the pieces together. Um, mm-hmm. So I started feverishly working to try to make all of these large scale quilts. And I've been working, you know, in video for, for a number of years now. My, my work is like a lot of multimedia work. It's included music. It's included video, sculptures. It's just, it just kind of runs the gamut. And I wanted to utilize some of the, the old TV components in this work as well. Um, just you know it kind of speaks to uh, the kind of world that we live in how we just have all of this kind of trash that just kind of builds up kind of builds up over over time and you know you you get a chance to speak to a a whole myriad of things by uh, using found objects 
And so using the televisions became kind of important because it was already a part of my work anyway. So I thought that I could use newer TVs at the bottom so, you know, I can incorporate it into the sculptural elements and then I can use the older TVs at the top. And uh, it was interesting because the museum was really up, uptight about the videos initially, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly the state-sanctioned murders of like George Floyd, Orlando Castile, and 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 those images. But I felt that in the type of climate that we're in, it it was imperative to keep keep it there. Even though it's a lot, it's it's beautifully uncomfortable, I think. And I think that it adds to the conversation. But as you were saying, I just, that was one of my favorite parts of the entire piece. You're right. Well, I appreciate it. I, I, I think the work, the way it functions is, it's a work that you can, it can pull you in with a sense of, of spectacle and, and beauty but when you get to it, then you're confronted with things that are a lot heavier and sometimes a little too heavy. And I thought that was, you know, the, kind of the give and take of the work. And I thought that was a, a beautiful, ugly balance. Um, and so it actually functions exactly the way, I, the way I wanted it to. And I do want to loop back to something that you said earlier. So it was the term that you used earlier. For people who might not know, how would you define the term decolonization? Well, that's it's an interesting term, um, and and I didn't coin it, so it, it's more or less like, I guess, kind of utilizing best practices of of what we know about the mind mm-hmm. and trying to kind of pull apart these these kind of unconscious biases for and against things that that we have uh going on and like i said it affects us it affects the uh, perpetrator of of racism and it affects the victims all at the same time so it's it's one of those things that we have to just start to to catch ourselves we have to start to realize how we think about our world and how we're moving through the world and this and i think people of color Black people in particular, I think we we have a consciousness about this that it's it's almost comes with the territory. However, I think there's a lot of uh, people out there who are not of color have a lot more work to do in those areas because there's no real reason to to try to understand these things. Um, and then, of course. I mean, we live in a world that kind of perpetuates all these ideas over and over and over and over again. So in a way, you can almost kind of understand, you know, how people can be. So excuse my French fucked up. It always fascinated me because you can you can find someone who will say on social media or say vocally out loud that, you know, people who need any kind of assistance, they're just taking money away from the government or it's or it's POC people who need this assistance because they just want to live off the government and I've always found it interesting that there are people from multiple backgrounds that need assistance and as human beings because we are humans first we all experience feelings of sadness of anger of feeling disrespected of feeling upset and 
the one reason why I asked you about the word decolonization, because I remember the first time I heard it and I remember, I want to say that it was probably about three or four years ago. And at the time that I heard the term, it was in class. Um, it was a history course. And the idea was presented to me. My mom used to say something along these lines when we were younger. She used to say that we all, we all take part in having to unlearn biases. She was like, because you are a person of color, you understand from a certain point of view, but because you live in a world surrounded by people who have these biases and seek to not understand, you have developed certain bad habits and certain tendencies and certain thoughts that are counterproductive to people accepting you. At the same time, the reason why I brought it up is because you're an artist and you created this piece. How do you personally separate maybe the anger or the emotion that you feel? It's a balancing act. I have realized that I have to also just express myself in, in the work, but at the same time, just be as balanced as I can about how I put, how I put the work out in terms of, you know, really having to interact with somebody who's not a person of color about it. I I understand that it's going to create a lot of uncomfortableness. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has. I mean, I wish I could tell you the the stories, you know, It, it has. But once people get past it, I, I do believe they realize that it's, it's, it's a conversation that needs to be had. And it's me being as honest as I can. I, uh, there's, there's no point in censoring my work or censoring the work to an extent that it doesn't really, it doesn't really hit like it needs to hit because we're living in those type of times where this country is being ripped apart, literally. It is. uh, By people who are literally polarized on one end or the other. And ultimately, you know, there's a right side of this and there's a wrong side of this. And it's my, it's important for me to actually pull the, pull some of the, the, the lid off of humanity and actually force people to think about how are we being unfair to each other? You know, and that's what my work is attempting to do. And it's, it's important for me to not to just create work that's uh, symbolically beautiful. It's important for me to, to try to push our humanity forward and, and force some sort of reckoning with what is objectively true and not just, you know, people's opinions you know, uh, your truth or my truth, there, there's real truth here. And that's where I'm trying to get at. So it's important to, to try to, to keep a balance. It's important for me to make work where I feel like I'm actually expressing and being honest. Because that, that's actually been a kind of a theme in my work for a long time, um, just trying to make work that I felt was as honest as possible. And a lot of times what will happen is you, you find yourself making work that's very culturally specific and when you're making work that's very culturally specific sometimes might leave people out of it because understand where you're coming from i think it it holds people accountable too it holds yourself and the people around you and you get to take part of that seed if you will like even if you have a not so good 
interaction because of it or because you've opened up and been vulnerable and talked about where it's come from there is still that iteration of this is actually what's happening and here behold it and you can choose to do with it what you will but this is the reality of it and I think a a big takeaway that I get is that we we all are a collective part of that journey and you're right we do live in a nation where on both sides there's so much anger and so much hatred and there is a point where regardless of what side you on one is no better than the other at a certain point because both are damaging in their own right so my question for you is what gives you hope in terms of people doing better in terms of people breaking those biases what generates hope in that avenue in the current state of the world that we live in today the piece is about hope um it's about trying to move to a place where we're all showing respect for our own individual humanity and realizing that our country and the country we live in that has a really horrible history is not based in that and we're still getting a lot of the residual energy so what gives me hope is this idea that we're getting to the point where the wool has been pulled off of america america has been this country that's always shown itself as morally correct and better than other nations and and then you see all of this mayhem that's been going on here and you see the cause of it and at the very root of it ironically it's white supremacy and it's this idea that we're better than these people and these people are taking something from us and if they get something then we're not getting something it's, it's all this craziness and ultimately i feel like that is gonna be our downfall in the sense that we are so divided in this way that somehow there's there's still this echo of a hierarchy of humanity in this country that we live in and how can we progress forward in a positive way if you know the little black girl over there who is, has genius ideas can't get forward because there's so many systems in place to make her feel like she doesn't belong. You know, it's these type of things that's going to hold us back because when you try to hold any group back, you really hold the whole back, you know? So we have to get to a place where everybody is open and everybody is accepting and we have to create more diversity in every realm of our world and more ideas need to be opened up for everybody to be able to have voice and uh, to be able to move our humanity forward so we won't be in this kind of state. I feel like it's, it's, it's the type of work that we just have to, uh, it's the type of work that's designed to create conversation to get us to move to a, a much better place. It's a way to reach people from different walks of life that might not be exposed to the person with the sign because they're not in that area. You have people coming to a space where art is and they're open to that experience. So they're more likely to be receptive to the ideas that are there 
waiting for them. So I know we've talked about a lot of heavy things. <laughs> I'm going to make it softer for a second. So tell me, tell me about young Carl. Tell me about how you became an artist. What was it like growing up in New Orleans? Paint me a picture of your journey to here. I've been an artist ever since, I want to say ever since I, I came into the world. You know, one of the youngest, uh, one of the experiences I had, my earliest memories, I should say, was uh, just drawing on the floor in my grandmother's house in mm-hmm. diapers, you know. So I was that kid. I was the dude that drew all the time. So I developed a reputation. Everybody knew it. It was mm-hmm. almost like, you know, it was almost like, um, you know, how you, you grew up in the neighborhood and everybody know you can do something good and people like keep it up. Right. Yep. They I basically never, are your personal cheerleaders. Yeah. Yeah. I never had the kind of experience where some people say, um, you know, my, my mother didn't want me to, to be an artist. It was always keep it up. You're good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I drew a lot and, you know, growing up in New Orleans was really, really fun because I grew up in a, uh, one of those really culturally, uh, rich neighborhoods mm-hmm. with, with second lines and Mardi Gras Indians and Mardi Gras was, you know, it was like three blocks away. Um, I was in that kind of neighborhood. So I had a awesome time growing up here. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, mm-hmm. especially in my teenage years. Um, you know, off the porch, as they say, I used to run the streets and have a good time. Um, <laughs> I got a, yeah, and I and I developed a lot of uh, relationships with musicians, um, cats who played trumpets and, and uh, well, one guy in particular um, I'm thinking about, but all my friends, I had a, I had a group, a crew, as they say, and um, everybody was a, like an artist of some sort. One guy was a DJ, one guy played the bass, my other partner played the drums. Um, and so ultimately uh, we started a band, you know? So I was kind of like a songwriter. And there you go, that's cool. Writing songs and never never did too much performing or nothing like that, but mm-hmm. I was always that guy who was creating, you know? I was a cre- definitely a hardcore creative. And so I went to an arts high school mm-hmm. and that changed everything. It was a school called NOCA, New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. So I was good enough to get in there at uh, at freshman year. Mm -hmm. And so when I went there, there was a man named John Scott, who was my mentor. John Scott didn't work there, but he came to my school to talk to us. And he did one of the most amazing artist talks. And I can still remember it. And so I, I guess he liked my work. And... He talked to my uh, principal and said, would it be okay if I came to Xavier University for a couple of days a week? Because he was actually head of the art department. I mean, this guy won the MacArthur Genius Award, you know? Mm-hmm. So it That's was, a big deal. I was, yeah, I was honored to be in his presence. And I was like 15, 16. I, he, was, he was the first African-American artist who kind of showed me how to be an artist. You know, I already knew how to draw I knew how to paint a little bit. I was just still learning how to do these things. I was I was doing music. I had music. I had songs that I was writing. I was writing lyrics, poetry, and all this stuff. But this guy, he showed me how to be an artist in a in a in a very like just lead by example kind of way. So I 
I was there, I, I must have been under his mentorship for about a year and a half. And then I had to leave. I had to go to Atlanta. And I say I had to leave because I, I just felt like I had to go. Um, I had to go find something. I had to go and see another city. So I went to Atlanta for college. Mm-hmm. And I wound up staying there for, I want to say 13 years. That's um, a long time. And I, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I went there. I went there for for art college. When I found out that you could get a, a college degree for art, <laughs> that was it. I was all in because I was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. But when I found out you could get a college degree, I didn't know there was art schools at the time. I just thought art was one of those things that people just kind of did. They don't really include that in your teaching. Like when they had the guidance counselor tell you what you should do with your life, right. that is not one of the schools. Like art schools don't show up on that brochure or on no, that piece of paper. Not at all. Not at all. But then I found out that there's actually a school and they had dorms and the whole nine. And so I uh, I applied. I applied. I, I applied to Atlanta College of Art and I uh, got got in and I moved to Atlanta and uh, you know and then tried to settle in in Atlanta and I did Um, and so I I had a whole career there for I would say after college I I was one of the emerging artists in the 90s you know so it was kind of an interesting I'd say the mid 90s early 2000s what not but uh, I wound up moving back to New Orleans, I want to say, about uh, many years later. I mean, I came back before Katrina hit New Orleans, and then I wound up going back to Atlanta. Once I got back to New Orleans, things just kind of started to level off a, a little bit. So mm-hmm. I just discovered that this was probably, and I wanted to be home anyway. Um, New Orleans feeds, uh, feeds my creative energy very well. So when I got back... Uh, Things started kind of leveling out a lot, and then I was able to kind of start over. And I started, you know, started slow. I started on new bodies of work. I started working on music. Um, I started working on paintings. Next thing you know, I started doing some shows. And but it's it's been quite a journey. It's been quite a journey. So it's it's not over. It's still still got things. It's to do. you've got so many more chapters in your book. And the beautiful thing is, you're an artist, so. You, you will Absolutely. never stop finding new ways to do art, which is the beautiful thing about it. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, you've been doing music for a while. You've worked in multimedia for many years. What right. what has art taught you about you specifically? Um, that it's what I'm supposed to do. Uh, it's my job on the planet. I'm fortunate in the sense that I know that, you know, I I realize that other people don't have the luxury of knowing that, you know, it was a time where I wasn't sure uh, exactly how to go about doing this. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it was a time where I actually had to, you know, I had no way to support myself. There was a time where I didn't have any kind of job, but I decided to just focus on my work. And I know it sounds crazy, but I, I did it. <laughs> it doesn't. It, it doesn't sound crazy though, because different things work for different people. And when you're a creator of any kind, when you're an artist, 
sometimes yeah. you need that space to be able to just create. Yes, yes. And and so ultimately, uh, as they say, um, you know, the universe supported me in that endeavor. And ultimately, I was able to continue to to make the work. And because I I've gotten the kinds of feedback that tells me that you're doing the right thing, uh, I just I continue to do it, and it just kind of reinforces why I'm doing the work that I'm that I'm doing. I've gotten some great feedback from a lot of different people from a lot of different projects. You know, it just lets me know that you're doing the right thing. You just keep doing the work that you feel is most honest. That's the best part of it, though, because you're super connected to it. So it has it res it's going to resonate more because you can identify with some of the feelings and emotions you you are cultivating a more honest part of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And hoping that it connects with other people. I think that's the one of the most important functions of art is to be able to make those connections to other human beings, particularly people of color, because I find there's not a, a whole ton of African-Americans that go to museums unless a black person is in the museum. So That's very true. When black people are in the museums, that's when black people go to the museum. Uh, so. It is true. I lived so I lived in Washington D.C. and I would go to the mm-hmm. Smithsonian every weekend, and right. I just noticed I would take my computer down there and write, just write my novel every weekend, and I noticed they got a new exhibit, and it was spotlighting um, people of color during the civil rights movement, and I had never seen so many people of color in the Smithsonian in the entirety of the four months that I had been going down there <laughs> with my laptop. I know that's how it is. That's how it is. So ultimately, I'm I'm trying to get more people to go to museums and connect to art, and to be able to have give people a reason to go to connect to art. You know, so you know that's that. I feel like that's a part of it. It's important. And I feel like sometimes with the way art is depicted in the media, even the art that you see walking down the street, um, Mm -hmm. somebody said something to me once and it kind of resonated and we weren't necessarily talking about it in a philosophical way, but they're like, I see all this art all the time and none of it looks like me. And I I found like it resonated with me because then it made me start to think and I was aware of it, but it's like somebody says it and then you become hyper aware of it. But it's true. You look at art nowadays and it is more diverse to a degree, but it almost feels like it's because of a sense of obligation rather than being organic sometimes, unless you are in spaces that cultivate that diversity on the regular So you having your artwork in a museum is important and it's needed. And a big, a big thing that I would say is to, to the little boy in diapers, drawing and coloring, what would you say to that boy who wants to do art or that little girl with all the really cool genius ideas in her head? What would you say to both of them? Oh man. Wow. If I could, I would just be that little voice in their ear saying, keep it up. You can do it. You know, um, 
it's um it's it's not an easy thing to 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 jump into however i i do feel like i'm an example of a person who has done it and i i feel like there's more and more african-american visual artists who are doing some amazing things um who's out there who's showing in museums and Smithsonian's and all of these other places it's possible and always realize that you can find a mentor that you've never met you know and you can use them as a a guide for your own life and just realize you can kind of walk in people's uh, footsteps to a certain extent even if you don't know them personally that's what I can say but if I was a little voice in their ear I would just I would tell them all kinds of other stuff but basically y'all can do it every yeah. single one of you can do it you can do it, it, it absolutely i i just feel like um i was just talking about this today um there was that point in my career where it was radio silence and i didn't have anything going and so i had to start all over and start again and i had to start making work and the only work that i can think to make was the work that related to me my life my culture Black people, um, our stories, and that just because of the nature of the world, I actually had some apprehension about how are they going to take it? Is anybody going to understand it? And just like I was saying earlier about you know cultural specificity, you know it's almost like will people who are not black understand your work enough to appreciate it and to even support it? Do you feel like they have? Yeah. Yeah, but it took me getting over that to and and like focus focus on the reality of the the authenticness that you're trying to bring to the work, mm-hmm. the the real vision, the real story, all of those things. To focus on that is more important. But I'm saying initially when I was first trying to figure out where I was going to go and what I was going to do, you got to start somewhere. And so I just started. Eventually, I mean, initially I was making some pretty horrible work, but it all started to even out as I kept working. I say horrible. It wasn't horrible. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, I look back at it and think, wow, you've come a long way. So being that you have taken the steps and started, is there anything that you kind of want to explore artistically that you haven't done yet? Yes. Film. Yeah. Ooh, that's a fun one. Yeah, it seems like a lot of fun and also a lot of it's hard work. Work, yeah. Um, but interesting enough, I just wrapped up my very first children's book. What? And, uh, that's I, awesome. I didn't write it. I I did a huge series of paintings, and I realized that in the process of of creating that book. I mean, I was used to somebody else's words, but I was actually putting all the images together and trying to conceptualize about how it's going to work and all of that. And it finally came together. And I'm realizing that it's not that far off from filmmaking in a sense. There was a Mm -hmm. lot of thought, you know, around consistency of continuity, a lot of photographic uh, um, studies to try to figure out, you know, how it was going to approach things. It was really, it was really an experience. And now uh, somebody reached out to me not too long ago, 
I would say about a month and a half ago. It was about doing a film about a, a man who was formerly incarcerated. And I had already done a series of works, of interviews of people, some people who had been formerly incarcerated. And I created, along with my friend uh, Andrew Smith, who's a, a videographer mm-hmm. and a video artist, we created these kind of PA, PSA segments. I don't know if people realize that it was it was a it was a work of art in the sense that you know it wasn't a painting it was just kind of like this video that was and you know when I do work like that I actually wanted to move the needle I don't want it to just be something that's just a conceptual beautiful idea not to you know not to disparage anyone who does that type of work you know but for me that I need I would prefer work that actually pushes the needle forward and try to create a better world for our children's children's children. Like this, we need to be thinking. We need to be thinking forward. Yeah, we have to. I mean, I I can't see it no other way. You're going to be a button filmmaker from the sounds of you've got a children's book that you illustrated that's coming out soon. And you, you truly are a paragon at your craft as an artist, as a multimedia, as a contemporary artist. Where can people find out more about you if they want to learn more about your art or just have the wherewithal to look at your your work? It can go to my website, carljoewilliams.com. That's a lot of stuff online. You can kind of get some examples of, of my stuff. My work was featured in Forbes and it was a beautiful video that went along with, with the article mm-hmm. and... You know, it's just like, I was just glad I had my work in Jacksonville at the time. That's a big uh, deal. And I feel like it's, it's very validating. And I think it's inspirational for people of color who look at it to see, wow, they're spotlighting this person of color. They're spotlighting multiple people of color. And if they can spotlight them, then maybe they can possibly spotlight me someday. Or maybe I can do this thing that I've been wanting to do. It's important. So I have to thank you because you, every time I do the podcast, I'm reminded in small ways of why I started doing it in the first place. But every once in a while, I come across guests that are extra special in the sense of they make me remember how much I appreciate conversation and how you bring that alive in your work that you do and your passion for it. Because I feel like I read an interesting article. It was in Time Magazine a very long time ago, and it was about how the artist can get desensitized. Like, they can get desensitized to their own work and to the artistry of art in general, to where they're just producing, and they're producing to shock or wow versus producing for the passion. And I can tell that you genuinely are passionate about what you do, and that's refreshing and beautiful. And thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for asking. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And again, you can find Carl. You can go to his website. I will link it down below so that all of you can go to it. Go stalk him. Don't actually stalk him. Go take a look at his work. (laughs) We've got a future filmmaker in the works here. And I'm really excited about your children's book. You got to let me know when you release it. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to figure out where the words are going to (laughs) go. (laughs) <laughs> Y'all figure it out. I, I painted up. I painted up so much. It was just like, okay, we don't want to, but we're gonna have to, you know. So, but it still looks really. It still looks really nice. It looks really good. It's about Mardi Gras, um, not happening the year of Katrina. It goes from the time that the that the hurricane. I mean, that the uh, hurricane 
the day before the hurricane hit all the way until Mardi Gras day. So it's, you know, it goes through the ups and downs of depression. I love that. That's a cool lesson for kids too. I love children's work that kind of blends reality with the lightness of writing a children's book and sharing those stories with them. Carl, thank you so much. And you are always welcome back. So feel free to come back and chat it up anytime that you want. All right. All right. All right. It was nice talking to you. It was nice talking to you too. Thank you to all of our listeners out there. As always, you are the most beloved and make all of this magic possible. The Raindrop Corner podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and all standard listening platforms. Until next time.